Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Being Patient community and all the newcomers joining us today. We have a very special interview um, with Hollywood duo power couple um, Lauren Miller Rogan and um, her husband, Seth Rogan, joining us from their home. Thanks so much to the two of you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah. So I always say, um, you know, obviously no one chooses Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's chooses us. Um, and the fact that we have you two um, joining us today says a lot. And um, we're really appreciative for your time. Um, this disease is so widespread. Um, no one's immune from it. And Lauren, I know that your mom um, had Alzheimer's disease. So I just wanted to really start um, with your story and really understanding, you know, I know it was early onset. Can you, can you tell us um, about, you know, when the journey began for you? Yeah, um, well, uh, unfortunately, uh, before my mom had Alzheimer's, my grandparents had Alzheimer's, uh, my mom's mother and father. Um, so I was familiar with it. Um, and my grandfather passed away when I was 12 and my grandmother when I was 18. And then at my college graduation, my mom started repeating herself. She told me the same story a few times. And, you know, I, you know, had a lot of denial about it, but I kind of just knew. Um, and then, um, you know, over the next couple years, um, things, you know, definitely got worse. She started repeating herself even more and the confusion. And by the time she was 54, um, you know, it was pretty clear that there was, you know, really something happening. And by 55, between 54 and 55 was when we got the official diagnosis. Um, and, you know, it was, you know, again, although we somewhat expected it, um, obviously, it was completely devastating. And, um, you know, we spent a long time feeling lost and scared. Um, and, you know, my mom was a teacher for 35 years. She taught first grade, which means she taught children how to read. And she was someone who was really active and vibrant and had a lot of relationships and friendships. And she participated in things. And so it just seemed like such a loss for yeah. her to lose all of these abilities. Um, you know, and eventually it got, got worse and my dad had to retire to care for her and uh, we hired someone to come into our house. Fortunately, we were able to afford that. Um, we moved my parents closer to live near us um, so we could help. Um, and, you know, I would say, I guess about seven or so years into her journey, eight years into her journey, you know, she stopped being able to walk. And the last five years or so were, you know, she was bedridden on nonverbal, uh, um, you know, just completely needed help doing everything that a human being does. Um, and we lost her last February, which, you know, is, you know, devastating, but at the same time, after 15 year journey and, you know, sort of waiting for my mother to die, you know, I, I feel like we finally felt some relief and, um, you know, that's, that's the journey in a, in a very broad nutshell, I would say. Yeah. And it's, it's a familiar one um, for so many people in our community who are, you know, going through this and who have gone through it. Um, your mom, um, uh, she had early onset Alzheimer's at such a young age. Um, and you have obviously a, a strong familial link to the disease. 
Um, did you ever talk about it with her prior to like in the context of she was, was she scared that she might end up with Alzheimer's disease? Yes. She um, would talk about it more like uh, often. And she would say, when I get Alzheimer's, when I, and this is before she showed any symptoms or anything. And I would say, stop saying that. Why do you, why would you say something like that? Um, and so then when she started showing symptoms, it was frustrating because I definitely had those feelings of like, well, why did she give this to her? Which is not reality. But, um, you know, it's, you know, back then, you know, as far as like a familial thing, I don't think we quite understood that, but I understood from seeing my grandparents go through it, you know, how this would feel to her. And one time I asked her, I'd read in like a teen magazine when I was growing up that like the place to have hard conversations was in the car while you're going somewhere because that come to a natural end when you, you get somewhere. So one time we went to Target and I was like, and I asked her if she was scared. And I remember we ended up having a conversation in the Target parking lot that and she said that Ben, this is my mom, but she said, you know, that she wasn't scared for herself, but she was scared for me and my brother and my dad. Um, that she knew that she would be taken care of, but she was, you know, worried about us, which, you know, she was a selfless woman. And as yeah, and as we know, the stress on the caregivers, which we will talk about, but um, I love how you two are approaching this as a duo and, you know, husband and wife, you you founded this charity HFC, which stands for Hilarity for Charity. Um, Seth, give me a little perspective, your, from your perspective, have you been touched by Alzheimer's other than with Lauren's family, um, with, with your own side of the family? Um, and what have you learned about the, the all this whole experience being the partner of someone who's been so impacted? Um, no, Alzheimer's is actually not uh, very prevalent uh, on my side of the family. Um, we are my we are Jews who die of other things on my side. Of the family. <laughs> um, <laughs> we come to our untimely end in a myriad of other ways heart disease, high cholesterol, diabetes, things like that. But um, unfortunately, Alzheimer's is not prevalent um, in my genetics. Um, and I'd never really seen it firsthand until, um, you know, uh, you know, meeting Lauren and, and you know, seeing especially, you know, what happened with her mother. So, um, yeah, it was very eye opening. I didn't realize what uh, you know, especially at first kind of bleak situation it was. And it's one of those things that the more, you know, we've gotten into it, the more we've found that there is a lot of hope, but it, it, we, we live in a very weird time. And we're kind of like, you know, at like that time in history when they didn't know smoking was bad for you. Like people don't take care of their brains. They don't understand how to take care of their brains. Doctors don't educate patients as to how to take care of their brains. And um, it, it, it's something that, yeah, has been like a very fascinating journey um, and a very sad journey, but ultimately uh, in some ways a very hopeful journey. So, yeah. So we're getting um, a question in about the familial link. Um, and, um, you know, I'm wondering this and I, you know, you don't, don't feel like you need to disclose it, but I, I went and after my mom had Alzheimer's and my dad's a geneticist too. So I went out and I got a genetic test because I wanted to know um, if I do have a genetic link. Um, and, um, you know, I, I didn't, um, my mom had later onset Alzheimer's. Um, so I, I just, um, we're being, you're being asked right now, can you talk about how much greater risk family members have once you know you have that link? 
Yeah. Um, uh, you know, first, I'm not a doctor or scientist, so always refer to people with degrees for your actual information, but I can shed some light on it, um, which is there, there are genes that are, um, that are, prep, that are, you know, that people can have that definitely uh, sort of dictate your, your risk level for Alzheimer's. There's a very, very, very rare gene called the PSN1 gene. Um, and I think there's another one that is, I think it's like less than 1% of people have it or something like that. 1%, it's very, 1% of also, I can't remember. Again, yeah, not it's a press, press in, um, press in one and two, and then there's APP. Those are the early onset markers, I think, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah. And those are much more aggressive forms. Then there are, you know, genes that are very common, like APOE4. Everyone has APOE. It's, you can have twos, threes, fours, you have two copies. Um, APOE4 is, is the sort of uh, noted gene that, that runs with Alzheimer's. Um, having two copies doubles your risk. Um, having one copy slightly increases your risk. But at the same time, and you know, we can get into this, what we've learned is like, is and the saying is something like, your genes may be the roadmap, but they don't have to be your destiny. Mm -hmm. um, and that so much can be done to um, alter your risk for prevention to take control of your brain and your genetic health. And I'm sure, you know, growing up with a geneticist, you greatly understand this, um, but that, you know, you don't have to be afraid of these tests. It's, it's good information to have. If you have the information, then you can take action. Yeah. Um, and if you don't have the information, then you can't take action. So, you know, for me, it's been something very powerful to, to do a deep dive into, to know that, you know, what, what I have in my family. And we, we, it's the term is known as epigenetics, which is like the environment's influence on our own genetics. Right. So, I mean, if you talk to my kids right now, they, they think I'm obsessed with my brain and it drives them nuts. But you know, you, when you have a mom with Alzheimer's, you suddenly start to think about what I can do to take care of my own brain. So what do you guys do? I mean, do you do you both talk about your brain health and do you, are you actively taking measures to improve your brain? Yeah. All the time. Um, right. We do talk about our brain <laughs> oh, health. I mean, we're both we're both writers mostly by trade. Um, it's probably the thing we spend um, the most time doing throughout the day. So we are very brain dependent as far as, you know, both of our careers as high fashion models dried up a few years ago. So we've had to pivot <laughs> to more intellectual pursuits. But um, so in the meantime, our brains are important for us. It's nice uh, to have something to fall back on though, if you need exactly. it. Exactly, yeah. you never know. So um, in the, yeah, we talk about, we, we do a lot for our sleep is very important. Our nutrition, what we eat and what we most more importantly don't eat, I guess. Um, is very important for our brains. Um, yeah, brain health in general is something that yeah we spend I would say uh, inordinate amount of not time. There's there's <laughs> talking about there's you know I would say there's there's around five elements of brain health and um, around two or three yeah, four years ago we got into it. I um, my uncle was also diagnosed my mom's brother with Alzheimer's and um, and unfortunately uh, he lived on the East Coast and I was looking for uh, a doctor to send him to and. Um, what just happened here? Updating on the computer. We're good. We're good. Um, and, um, and found Richard Isaacson at the Alzheimer's prevention clinic at Will Cornell in New York. And so he is the one who's sort of, you know, helped us understand how to go on a brain health journey. And so it's, it's sleep, like Seth said, it's nutrition, it's diet, it's exercise, uh, oh no, diet, nutrition, mental health, uh, and 
learning uh, new things, learning new things, brain stimulant, which we yeah. also do, which we also do. What do you learn? What are you learning? Uh, well, we do pottery. Um, and uh, yeah, we're currently enrolled in a glaze making workshop online, which is essentially like chemistry. In intense chemistry. We have a closet full of chemicals. We're learning <laughs> what they do and how to create uh, glazes using them. And um, yeah, honestly, it's an entirely new skill. It's a, it's a it's a whole part of my brain I never thought I would ever really use. So um, yeah. Yeah. And then so, I, I'm so glad. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just gonna, it's just something that, you know, Alzheimer's can be, you know, can feel dark can feel heavy. And in the area of brain health, there's so much light and hope. And yeah. I feel like it's given us so much energy in yeah. our mission and just in my own personal life. Yeah, it, there's fun things you can do that yeah. stimulate your brain as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I started to play piano because I hadn't touched the piano um, for since I was 10 years old. And, you know, I actually noticed that my brain was changing the more I played, because when I first started, I'd have to focus on my left hand and I would just because I'm right handed. So it was really unnatural. And the more I played, the more I realized that it. I didn't have to think about one hand anymore. And that's neuroplasticity. Right. You're you're right. so. I mean, it's it's really actually, if you pay attention to it, you do see cues as to how we can't see it, but we actually do feel it in certain yeah. ways. So well, let's talk a little bit about HFC, because I love that you guys are doing this and you're using, you know, your writing, your acting skills to really um, translate that into good cause for Alzheimer's disease. So tell us a little bit about HFC, um, what you guys are currently into. I know you focus a lot on caregiving um, and, and providing support, but Give us a little overview. Yeah. Well, we started uh, in 2012 uh, by just doing a variety show. Just, you know, we work in comedy and that, you know, is sort of the area we know. And so that's what made sense to raise money and awareness for this disease. But then felt like we had, you know, an opportunity to really uh, dig in and shape our mission and formed a full organization, which became our own 501c3 in 2006. 17, 18, I can't remember. Um, and, um, and you know, our mission has really been focused, like we said, on brain health, but also on caregivers. Um, you know, we saw firsthand the toll that caregiving took on my dad and then us and my brother. And, you know, certainly we've gotten to know so many families along the way. And being a caregiver is such an extreme burden to carry. Um, and so we've partnered with Home Instead Senior Care and we provide at-home uh care for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it, but have chosen to keep their loved ones at home. We, of course, provide uh, virtual support groups. We did virtual support groups before the pandemic um, because <laughs> uh, getting support through a computer can be easier than driving to a group. Um, and, um, and then I am so excited about this Friday, um, we're hosting our first ever uh, HFC CareCon, which is, is an afternoon of uh, seminars to help caregivers and um, help them to navigate and give them tools to make their caregiving journey a bit easier. Um, we're gonna have uh, our panels be moderated by uh, Sanjay Gupta and Kimberly Williams Paisley and Ashley Williams, uh, um, Sean Hayes, Yep. Lisa Gibbons. I think over a thousand people have signed up already. Or something like Actually, that, early right? before the thirteen, over thirteen hundred. There you go. Which, uh, wow. Yeah, that's a lot of caregivers. Um, yeah. 
And it is, it is such a huge need. Tell us a little bit, like your mom was cared for, you said at home, um, in her home. Tell us what that meant. Like even, you know, in the, in the end stages, I mean, it, it does, this disease gets harder and harder to manage as the person needs more and more care. Um, what was it like in your circumstance? Was your mom, um, in a separate home or was she in your home or what was that like? So, you know, again, we're so lucky to be able to afford this type of situation um, that we uh, got a duplex for my parents, actually, which was a really amazing setup. My mom was on one side with her caregiver and my dad was literally right next door on the other side of the wall. Um, so he could be there as much as he needed, but also he could go to his side and close the door and take a breath if he needed that. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we had 24 hour care there with her. Um, amazing angelic caregivers on top of my dad, who, you know, was completely devoted to taking care of her and feeding her and, you know, lifting her from her bed to her chair and the chair back to the bed. And, you know, it's really, truly a 24-7 job and was for her for a number, many number of years. Yeah, I, we have a, a question on that too um, from someone saying, I'd like to ask Seth and Lauren if they use humor in the relationship with her mom um, in relation to Alzheimer's. My mom's 90, I found keeping it light, never say the word Alzheimer's or dementia. I try to be her memory when I can and then just tell her memory um, sucks and laugh. Uh, I don't dwell on it or make her feel it. I try to make her laugh, wondering what they think. Um. I think humor helped us cope. I think like, and what's interesting, and for me as an outsider, like every time I'd seen Alzheimer's portrayed in anything, it was generally like older people and with kind of like, there was a phase of like lighthearted forgetfulness before kind of the darkness really creeped in. And like with Lauren's mother, we there was never that phase. It, 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 it went very dark, very fast. And there was never an opportunity to use humor in, any way, shape, or form when relating to Lauren's mother or family about what was happening. It, there, it was, of all the things I've encountered in my life, devoid of humor in, in, in every way, shape, or form, um, which I think is why we look to humor for personal outlets and as a way to help distract people from, from how terrible the disease is. Um, if if but if you are in a situation where you know your family member or loved one can can relate in that way, then uh, that's great. But like um, truthfully, like much to my shock from how I had seen Alzheimer's portrayed, like there was not one day where there was that like funny, let's kind of joke around about how forgetful this is. Like it, it went from like it went from like horrifying to more horrifying to more horrifying on a day-to-day -day basis. And like, yeah, it, it was, it was not funny. I, I will add though that, and you know, many people I'm sure have experienced similar tests, but you know, I've heard many doctors say, if you've seen one case of Alzheimer's, you've seen one case of Alzheimer's. Yeah. And, um, and that, you know, we have a partnership with a, an organization called laughter on call and they specifically work with, uh, caregivers and people with living with Alzheimer's to include improvisation in their in their daily lives and you know ways to you know lighten situations if the person living with Alzheimer's is able to do that and so I think it's a really case by case basis you know for us that you know like Seth said wasn't really part of our journey but um, you know I think that things like you know 
improv and, um, you know, of course, finding the lighter side can always be helpful if, if you can do that. Yeah. And one of the things that I love that you both are doing is pointing out, like, like Seth said, this is not only an old person's disease, you know, I mean, not that it's tragic. It's not tragic when it does happen to elderly people, but there's more people who are uh, more younger people who are being impacted and will continue to be impacted by this disease. I mean, you know, for you, Lauren, that's extraordinary that you lived through this journey from your grandparents to your mom um, at such a young age. I mean, Alzheimer's has really been a big part of your life um, for yeah. most of your life. Um, I, I don't remember a time, unfortunately, where I haven't had a loved one with Alzheimer's. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, that's I did, right now. It's true. This is honestly, I, I did. I, after We're in the honeymoon after here, my yeah. mom died, I said to my my therapist, I was like, "This is the first time I haven't been losing a loved one to Alzheimer's." There you go. Like, it's, <laughs> I, I've often wondered this, um, but did you feel? Do you ever feel the need just to kind of let it go for a little while? I mean, because Alzheimer's is consuming. You know, it's not an easy light thing. No. I mean, have you felt the need to kind of just say, "I need a break." I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I take break. I mean, no, I, I don't. HFC is something that, look, I mean, it's an organization. I don't want to be like, oh, it's so easy and wonderful. And we never have any stress from it because that's not real. But, um, um, you know, it's something that gives me hope. It was an outlet for me. It, it was where I found positivity. You know, it was where I found optimism. And so HFC became the break. Um, you know, there are times when, yes, I'm like, I don't want to talk about Alzheimer's right now. But at the same time, it's been such a blessing to be able to make any sort of impact in it um, that, you know, I think we found a balance that that I think I can handle. And I think Seth can handle. I'm speaking for him. I go, yeah, you do. <laughs> I, I like I love this question that um, Carrie Cuskers asked. She said, "Any suggestions for preserving personhood and destigmatizing dementia in the community?" That's such an important question. Anything yeah. you've learned? I mean, you guys have a great network to leverage off of. You know, just because you can go into a room and draw a big crowd, and there's a lot of notable people in there. Um, but what have you learned on your journey? It's tough. I mean, uh, look. I on one hand, I've found so much energy in the shift in what I've personally seen from when we started talking about this disease to now, but that doesn't mean there isn't still a huge stigma that surrounds it. And I think that we just have to keep talking about it. I, I've seen there are some amazing um, advocates of people who are living with Alzheimer's who I more recently have seen come you know, and speak. Uh, there's a man, uh, Greg O'Brien, who's an, an amazing speaker, writer, who, uh, has been living with Alzheimer's. And I think that he's someone who is, in my opinion, like really tearing down stigma. And, you know, I think it's about an individual's comfort, but I think that, you know, the more families, the more caregivers, the more people with Alzheimer's talk about it. Um, that's, that's the way it can help. Um, but it's, it's hard. You know, we, we made a documentary called this is Alzheimer's. That's just a very simple, like this is Alzheimer's look at it. And, you know, we can't get distribution for it. Because it's a real bummer. Because it's a real bummer. <laughs> well, I, I mean, yeah, I'd say it's like, not a happy ending. You mean like it doesn't? Well, have no, it is even because we've talked about HFC and how we find hope in that. But you know, I think that I think it's something that people want to put lock away and not confront themselves yeah. with it until they are forced to. It seems like there are a few things that make people more uncomfortable than 
speaking about brain health in general and that I would, I would say like mental health is a offshoot of uh, that statement. Yeah. But I think like, especially in America right now, like the whole subject of mental health, brain health is like, people just don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to, it is just like, it is weirdly of all the things I talk about, the most taboo thing and the thing that makes the people people the most uncomfortable. Um, and I made a movie where food has sex with each other. So <laughs> that, that, that speaks to how taboo brain health is. Why do you think that is? I mean, let's kind of unpack that one because I actually think that's, that's so true, um, you know, but there's been a lot of conversations because of COVID around depression and mental health and everything. What, why do we think it is, what, why is that people's reactions? Um, like, wh why is there such a stigma around our brains? And, you know, the, the, I mean, I know my mom felt a lot of shame with her diagnosis. She didn't want to tell people that I have yeah. Alzheimer's, you know, it's, it's a really yeah. hard thing. Um, maybe because it's, it's associated with our intellect. Um, I don't know, but I find the more you talk about it though, the less, uh, like with my kids, for example, we always we constantly talk about Alzheimer's because we have a family member with Alzheimer's. So to them, they're they're growing up like you, Lauren, where it's a topic of conversation, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, not to get too like dark or philosophical, but I think that humans have an inherent fear of death, and that's why we've created all these constructs to help us deal with it. And I think that come, you know, with a fear of death comes with a fear of losing control. And I think that you know, you your mental faculties are key in maintaining control as a human being. And so therefore it's scary. Um, it's, it's why we obsess with about youth and we are obsessed with tomorrow instead of today. Um, and, you know, I think that the more we can, again, like confront reality that we're all human, everyone is going to die someday of something. And we should not deny that. And, and try to do what we can today to learn and control, prevent, take hold of whatever we can, whatever science tells us we can do um, if we're so scared about it, because there is there is much to be done. And to live in denial, to me, doesn't, doesn't help anyone. You know, my mom also didn't want us to tell anyone. And that certainly wasn't helpful at all for her, for me, for the Alzheimer's as a whole. And so, you know, I think it's about just not being so scared. I don't have anything to add to that. I'm so sorry. We're it's okay. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the research, like HFC. Are you guys giving money to research as well? Yeah. I know you. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. What are you, what, because yeah. I mean, you know, we're all looking on that spectrum of like what's going to help in the, the, you know, to take us closer to the cure. Or, um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't think there's going to be one magic pill, but, you know, we are hoping that there will be um, a lot of new therapies that do come out that help us to either prevent or, or slow down the clock, so to speak. So, yeah. Uh, what, where are you guys on the research of this and um, what types of research do you tend to support? Um, again, brain health education um, is a, is an area that we think is probably the most realistic um, and immediate route to um, people gaining some control over this disease. You know, it would be great if there was um, a cure. Um, but again, like there's no cure for 
lung cancer, but people have a very have a much better sense now of how to not get lung cancer than they did, you know, 30 years ago. Not to say no one gets it, but you can do a lot more to not get it. And I think like that's how that is how we have been kind of contextualizing this. Like right now we're at a time when everyone's just going crazy and no one's even considering that maybe their activity, what they're eating, how much they're exercising and what they're sleeping is affecting their brain health. Um, and that's something that we just know you can delay. What is it? 60, 40, 50? 40 at four, what, these days science is saying that four out of 10 cases of Alzheimer's can be prevented or delayed if someone lives a brain healthy lifestyle. So we are focusing on yeah. brain health research. Uh, we've you know, worked with the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic with Dr. Isaacson in New York City. Um, we have created brain health education tools um, because teaching people how to use this information is really key, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll continue to go down the route of investing in prevention research. Um, you know, I, I would love to fund a drug. Um, and if people want to give us the billions of dollars that that will take, I'm happy and know exactly where it should go. Um, but um, I will also do what I can with what we have, which is, you know, really help people today, um, which is what and, we want to do. And the research on the brain health is so critical too. You know, I always find that when you say, okay, go exercise 30 minutes a day, then people are like, yeah, 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 I heard it, done it, you know. But if you tell them and explain to them that you're actually adding gray matter to your hippocampus, you know, it's um, it changes kind of the way that, you know, again, so I, I've always thought to all the tech people watching out there, come out with a brain scan that shows us what yeah. the difference is, right? And that could be a more motivating factor for people to really care about their brains. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so I just, um, I, I, you know, a lot of people are asking about the documentary actually saying, start a GoFundMe and let's get it funded, you know? <laughs> How well, far away are you from it? Yeah, we've already, It's yeah. done, it's funded, we, thank you, that's lovely. Okay, cool. Without getting it on the right platform <laughs> yeah. so people see it. Okay, um, Netflix, or you you have, um, um, HFC or Hilarity for Charity was on, you, you have a series on Netflix, right? Is it, is it? We had a special on Netflix a few years ago, yeah. Yeah, one yeah. of our, our variety shows you can watch it on on netflix mm -hmm. cool okay so just to wrap it up here um give us um just um uh, a piece of advice I, a lot of people are saying thank you for sharing your story um but what what can you tell us uh to learn on this journey so um you know lauren first you and then seth um just give us something that you've well two things one, follow HFC, because if you want to learn about brain health, we will teach you so you can get on our mailing list or follow us on social media. Um, but we share information all the time. But second, I will say the easiest thing you can do to take care of your brain is sleep. Develop good sleep habits, which means going to bed at the same time every night, waking up around the same time every morning, which will happen naturally if you have the same bedtime. Um, making sure that you have a cool room. Um, we have a mat, a pad that we put on our bed that's extra cooling. Blue light glasses before bed, which helps tell your brain that should start shutting down. Wearing a sleep mask all night will help regulate your sleep. And wear a sleep tracker. You can get a, a Whoop, which is some uh, we work with the company Whoop. It's a band um, can help track your sleep and your activity that way. Um, but my tip: sleep. It's free. You do it in your own bed. You don't have to stand while you're doing it. 
Someone's asking, I have to say, as you're saying this, how do you deal with alcohol consumption? We don't drink. We're we're at, we're not big drinkers, <laughs> but alcohol is not great for your brain, unfortunately. Look, a little moderation here and there, but as someone who wears a sleep tracker every night, I can tell you that one glass of wine within two hours of bedtime is going to essentially ruin my sleep yeah. for the night. And well, it, it's not that my sleep won't count, but it won't be good quality sleep for my brain. Yeah. It speaks to sugar. I think uh, yeah. like what like smoking is for your lungs and what like fat is for your heart, sugar is for your brain. Like yeah. it is, if you never had Sorry. any sugar again for the rest of your life, you'd be much healthier. And that includes alcohol, most fruit. You don't eat fruit. That's a lie. Like berries, <laughs> berries are good. Berries yeah, are berries good. are good. But like Blueberries, if you never had an apple again or an orange for the orange, rest of your orange, life, orange juice, you would, not you good. would be much healthier. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, unfortunately, sugar is like wine, alcohol, all this stuff has sugar. Like. Yeah. It literally, like, no sugar is better than any sugar. So um, it, it's a real bummer, but that is that is the truth. Eat yeah. some French fries instead. Although those have complex carbohydrates, which turn into sugar. So. <laughs> We're all screwed. No matter yeah. what <laughs> so, uh, Seth, just wrap it up for us as the partner of someone who who's had you know such a, a heavy life with um, with with Alzheimer's. What advice as as the partner could you give us? Oh, oh um, implore your partner to seek a, a therapist <laughs> or a professional who is more equipped to deal with um, these types of emotions uh, than you. I, as I said to Lauren Barrio, I was like, this is a professional level of emotional weight. Uh, to to, to deal with like I was like I can be supportive but I don't actually understand like how to help you navigate this in like a meaningful way you know what I mean like I'm a I, I don't I, I don't understand the complexities of of therapy you know and it feels like if there was ever someone who would need that it's someone going through what is decidedly a traumatic experience you know um uh, and so, yeah, that that was probably the smartest thing I ever did. Was important. and I mean, but when you both got married, you, Lauren, you were already in this journey, right? It, it was oh yeah, like, yeah, that was like year, oh yeah, this is when we started dating. That was year six of my mom's. I, I mean, I yeah, yeah I, you know. But we've been yeah. together. It actually started around when we started. We've been together like fifteen years, so it started around when we started dating. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you to both of you. And, you know, we'll give the CARICOM. Can anyone sign up to CARICOM? Anyone um, can sign up. Um, we'll post the link. Go to, yeah, post the link. Um, and yeah, join us. It should be, you know, full of good information and we'll try to have a good time and we'll keep it upbeat and, um, you know, give people some tools to make it all a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thank you for that too, because as we all know, the stress on the caregiver is immense and any other tools that could be um, implored and, you know, employed would be um, amazing. And just to, just to be with people who are with a shared experience helps so much. So thank you both so much for your work um, and your thank advocacy you. and, you know, let us know how we can support, um, you know, we'll post all the links to your sites and we're really grateful for the work that you do in raising awareness and, um, you know, all the best to your family, Lauren, as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. So if anyone wants to um, see this um, 
in its entirety, go to beingpatient.com. Just a reminder, don't forget to sign up for our newsletters because we're going to give you um, upcoming talks with people like um, Lauren and Seth and uh, top scientists from around the world. We have patient perspective. We have it all. Um, so please do join the Being Patient community if you haven't already done so. Um, and we will keep you abreast and we will bring you um, the latest on Alzheimer's research um, and um, welcome people into the community. So thanks so much for joining us.